You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. All right, so tonight we start a new series, new semester, new series. We're going to be talking about all the feels. Okay, so obviously this series is going to be about feelings, about emotions. We're going to try to cover a range of things. We're going to talk about things like shame and feelings of hope, talk about feelings of sadness, talk about uh, some feelings of jealousy, talk about feelings that you might have uh, toward a person or whatever, and, and lots of different things we're going to cover in the series. And the point of doing this is because feelings are inevitable. We all have them. There's no avoiding them. Uh, we're going we're gonna to deal with feelings. And the ability to feel is God-given, and it's a good thing. So it's not a, it's not a bad thing that we have feelings, uh, even though sometimes they lead in bad directions, you know, things that we would call bad or evil or whatever. But feelings themselves aren't necessarily right or wrong. They're not necessarily bad or good. You know, they may be the result of good or bad things happening in our lives, maybe the result of good or bad things done ourselves. And in a fallen world with sin and sinful natures involved, we're always going to experience ups and downs. We're going to experience like a whole range of circumstances, a whole range of, of things that are going to happen in our life. And feelings are going to reflect that. Our feelings are going to go up and down with the circumstances often, uh, at least the things that come naturally to, to us. And if we let them lead us, if we let our feelings take the lead in our lives, they can lead us to responses and actions and desires and thoughts that are sin or that are bad, or good. And, uh, and so as we think about these things, I want us to think about this, that, that there's one thing I've heard a few times now when thinking about this and, uh, you know, talking to other people about this, is that feelings are real, but they themselves are not always reliable. It's like emotions are real, feelings are real, but they're not always reliable. And I think we know this. I think we know this sort of intuitively, that feelings are not always reliable, can't always depend on what I feel to tell me the truth or to be the, the right assessment of any, any given situation. You know, and the Bible makes it pretty clear. He says, you know, actually Jeremiah, who is writing the passage we're going to read tonight, uh, one thing that he tells us is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. He says, who can understand it? And he's, he's saying, essentially, this heart that is the center or core of our being and, the, and the, the thing that houses our emotions and our wills and our desires within us is desperately sick because of a sinful nature. And no one can fully even understand what's going on with it. And so we, we're told in Scripture to guard our hearts. And so that means that what comes out of us and what we feel in response to life circumstances isn't always to be trusted they might misguide or be misinformed. And so what we're going to try to do is look at how uh, the, our feelings actually line up with the truth. Because we can't always trust what we feel to tell the whole story. Our feelings shouldn't be allowed to outweigh objective truth. Okay, so there's this uh, great quote from John Piper. It's going to be on the screens. Uh, potentially too small to read it depending on how good your eyesight is. But John Piper said this about feelings. He said, my feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. 
when that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. And I think that's what we're going to try to do with this series. I don't know how good of a job we're going to do with it. We're going to try, though, to take feelings and go, okay, how do we take our feelings, line them up against truth and say, okay, what is uh, acceptable for us to think and, and all these things, and where do our, our, our feelings line up with the truth and where the things that we feel reflect what is actually true, how do we lean into that? And then where are, when we find that our feelings are contradicting what God has said or what we feel is contradicting what it is, is true objective reality as God has defined it, then we need to pause and examine those things and be able to reflect and ultimately submit our hearts to the Lord. Praying through that, praying that he would help us to feel according to the truth. Because feelings do not make good gods. Feelings don't make good gods. So if we live by our feelings and don't test them, we may be ruled by our feelings. And as, they, as circumstances in our life rise and fall, so do the feelings. And they come and go, and they just don't make good gods. And so as we think about these things, I want us to to head into Lamentations chapter 3. Okay, so Lamentations is in the Old Testament. I don't know if you guys have read much of Lamentations in the past. Um, it's an awfully sad book. So there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of sadness, a lot of talking about distress and being downcast and all, and all that in, the, in this part of the series. But we're going to be in Lamentations chapter 3. It's going to be on the screen for you. But one thing that we haven't done much in a while is to stand up for the reading of Scripture. So... I would like for you guys, once you find uh, Lamentations chapter 3, go ahead and stand up. We're actually not even going to read the whole passage that we're covering tonight in this segment. We'll read 20 verses here. We'll come back and read 13 verses later. But for now, Lamentations 1 through 20. Okay, you guys ready? I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. You guys can have a seat on that very sad note. Here's what's going on. Okay, Jeremiah is writing Lamentations as Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonians. Okay, so Jerusalem has fallen. Terrible things have happened to God's people. The city has been ransacked. The temple is, has been uh, defiled. And Jeremiah has been prophesying for years to the city and to the people uh, of Judah. And he's, he's been prophesying for years to, to say, hey, you need to stop 
worshiping false gods. You need to come back to the true God. You need to repent of your sin and, and live for him. Because if we don't do this as a people, God is going to bring destruction. And he's been warning them about this, and no one listened. No one listened. At least the majority didn't listen because the Lord brought the destruction that he promised. And Jeremiah and any people who might have still been there and faithful to the Lord in the city or in the region around it obviously are devastated. Jeremiah is devastated. You read this in these, in these 20 verses. He's, he's lamenting over what happens, and chapter 3 feels incredibly personal. If you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's talking more about the city. He's talking more about the other people. But here it seems really, really personal that the Lord has taken them out, and Jeremiah feels it really deeply himself. And Jeremiah's broken, and it seems like he feels like the Lord is against him. That the Lord is directly working against him. And, it, and if we were to look at some of the things that he says, we can probably resonate a little bit with it. Maybe we've had feelings that were similar to what Jeremiah feels here and what he's describing. You know, if we were to look at this, there are probably some things that Jeremiah is describing that we might feel like God is doing to us or has done to us. And so here's a few of those things, like punishing us for wrongdoing. We might feel like sometimes God brings things into our life that is just a punishment for wrongdoing. And we need to pause on this for a second because it was the people's failure to walk with the Lord that brought this destruction on them. God promised if you do not turn from worshiping these false idols, turn back to me, then this will happen, and this is what happened. So in this case, yes, the people in the city are getting the destruction that is promised. It is punishment for their sin. But anytime I read about Something like this. You know, you read about this, the fall of Jerusalem and you read about some of the other things that happen in the Old Testament and you read about God devoting things to destruction. My mind wants to go, how great must their sin have been? Like how, how, how grievous must their sin have been for God to have done this? And I've got to remind myself all the time that all sin is bad. All sin is this bad. All sin deserves destruction. And God warned them repeatedly about what was to come if they didn't repent. So it's not like we should necessarily feel sorry for the people in Jerusalem who are getting punishment for what they deserve. But I could tell you also something, something else that is true. Sometimes suffering comes on us because of our sin. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves, but also there are other times where suffering comes upon us that has nothing to do with our sin. And if you're stuck in this mindset of thinking every time something bad happens to me and my feelings respond to that in a negative way, if you're always thinking that is something that God is punishing you, with. That's just not true. We could set that aside because here's the thing. There are times we suffer because of our own failures, but there's also times we suffer because other people's failures. We suffer because somebody else led us astray or sinned against us, or sometimes we suffer just because we deal with the results of living in a fallen world. So it could be both, could be either. In this case, Jeremiah is the one lamenting, and he is the one who's actually tried. He's tried. He warned the people about what was going to happen if they didn't turn back to God. He was trying to be faithful to God. He was doing the right thing, and yet he is suffering. And so, yes, most of the people in this situation are suffering because of their sin, but Jeremiah is the one who's kind of caught in the crossfire of other people's sin and the suffering that is coming. And so it can very much feel like God is punishing us whenever we face difficulty. Sometimes that is the case. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes God is disciplining us or allowing us, that is, to face the consequences of our sinful actions. It's true. But sometimes... He's not. But, you know, we kind of have feelings that can come either way. And sometimes we can put ourselves in the same boat 
with Jeremiah feeling like it's a punishment for sin, right? But also this idea of like, we can resonate with, with Jeremiah in the sense of like, God, it feels like God is thwarting my plans. He's like crushing the plans that I have. You know, you ever have a, a plan in mind and then just something falls through about it. You're, just, you're certain that the plan is going to work. Maybe it's for, uh, for your future. Maybe it's something a little bit less of a big deal than that. But like you have a plan and it just falls through and it comes crashing down. And, and it can lead us often to wondering why God would allow that to happen. Like why, why wouldn't God just allow me to have this plan? It was all good things. I wasn't trying to be, you know, going against him or his will for my life. I just had this plan and, and he, he didn't allow it to happen. Or he hasn't allowed it to happen yet. And it feels like God could be thwarting our plans. And maybe it's that the plans are so far derailed now from where you thought they were going to go. Your life is not anywhere where you thought it was going to be, and you just wonder why. You could also resonate with Jeremiah if you have felt like God is holding something good back from you or that he's taken something good from you. And, I mean, that can happen in any number of ways. Jeremiah here is talking about being, like, his, his language is, you know, it's very poetic in a sense, but he's talking about being walled in and besieged. Literally, the city was besieged. They had enemies surrounding the city, and he's stuck. And, and he's saying, like, the chains feel heavy on him. He talks about <clears throat> being driven into darkness. The sense of, like, feeling trapped or feeling stuck where you're at or feeling like you're in the dark with no light to see where any of this is headed. And maybe you felt like that, like God has just trapped you, and he's holding you back from what's good or he's taking good things from you, and you're just living in this place of darkness. Maybe you feel like what Jeremiah talks about in verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. I've felt like that at times. Like, just don't have any peace. And I, I'm stuck in this place of unhappiness. I don't even know where happiness could come from me right now. So maybe you felt that, or you're feeling that now, downcast, despairing, distressed, depressed, with little or no prospect of things changing. I think we can also feel like, and resonate with Jeremiah in this, that maybe God's out to get us. He talks about a God being a bear uh, lying in wait for him, like a lion in hiding. And, and that maybe God isn't just allowing things to happen in my life, but it feels like he's actively working against me. And we can feel like that sometimes. That's what Jeremiah felt like. Not only that, but not listening to our prayers. Verse 8, though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. I don't know if you ever felt like that, but like the prayers are hitting the ceiling. They're not getting anywhere. It's like, is God even listening? I'm sure we've all felt like that at times. And we could resonate with Jeremiah in the sense of like feeling like God is just humiliating us or bringing us low, really humbling us. Maybe it's the downfall uh, of, of your plans. Maybe it's the downfall of a reputation, whether that is because of something you've done that was wrong or some, something that you tried to stand up for that was right and people have torn your reputation down. I don't know. But here, I think where Jeremiah is at is he has tried really hard to be a representative for God and to speak for God to the people and he's just, you know, it didn't work out. Nobody listened to him. The city got destroyed. And now he's feeling, like, humiliated. He's become the laughingstock of all peoples. And maybe you felt like that. And just in summary, if we could just list some words of things that maybe we've felt before, maybe we're feeling now, that we can feel the same things that Jeremiah are feeling, maybe you can relate to some of these things. Feeling confused. Hurting. Broken, bitter, downcast, sad, defeated, spent, targeted, grieving, humiliated, helpless, hopeless, alone. 
And if we stopped reading right there, this might be the most depressing negative message we've ever heard or maybe ever will hear. Praise the Lord, it doesn't stop there. I don't know where you're at right now. You may be feeling exactly some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Maybe you've felt these things before, and this is bringing up bad memories for you. Or maybe you've had a pretty comfortable life up to this point, and now I'm making you anxious about what's going to come potentially down the road for you. But for all of our sakes and for the Lord's glory, Jeremiah turns a significant corner in verse 21. And here's what we're dealing with. Reality is Jeremiah had a reason for feeling all the ways that he felt. The circumstances were such that these feelings reflected reality. Okay, the reality of the situation led to all these different feelings, and it's not like his feelings are necessarily out of sync with reality, but you, and, and also you don't hear him apologizing necessarily for having these feelings or feeling this way. He doesn't necessarily apologize for feeling this way. And what we see is not Jeremiah saying, my feelings are illegitimate, my feelings are not real, but rather I have these feelings, and yet I'm going to take my feelings and line them up against objective truth from God, about God, and I'm going to allow those things to inform how I respond to these feelings, how I respond to these circumstances. Because there's a greater reality that Jeremiah is going to remember, some deeper truth, unchanging truth, that did determine how he would respond to this. So we're going to pick up and we're going to read in verse 21 through 33. No need to stand up this time. We're going to read. We're going to read on. So verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. We need to be clear about a few things. There's some objective truth about God that Jeremiah brings back to his mind. And one thing we need to be clear about out of the gate is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We can't understand how that works necessarily with this world where we know we have, we have the ability to make choices as human beings and we bear responsibility for our decisions. So when we think about free will and God's sovereignty, this isn't a discussion about that. But I just want to say those both exist and are legitimate. But in this passage, we read that God is sovereign and we can't get past it. And throughout Scripture, we read that God is sovereign, that nothing happens to thwart his will. Nothing happens which is not allowed to happen under his watchful care. You, you see this in verses 32 and 33. Though he cause grief, he'll have compassion. For he does not afflict from his heart, which implies that he does afflict. That some of these things that are coming upon us that we feel and, and we want to attribute to God, maybe there's something legitimate to our looking to God and asking why he would do these things or why he would allow these particular things in our life. The thing is, we don't have the perspective that he does. We don't know everything that he does. We can't see everything past and everything present and everything future at the same time. He can. He, he sees all these things and he knows all things. And he's sovereignly 
working in all these things. And we don't see all these things. We're limited in that way, in a way that he is not. And we can go one of two directions with this. We can get derailed here. We can get derailed here in in thinking about how God has brought all of the things that have happened in our life about, even the things that we don't like, and we can be upset with him. Or we can read on. We can keep going. We can either stop at the reality as we see it through our finite minds and hearts and be upset with God for either allowing something to happen or for doing something in our life that we don't like. Or we can look at greater realities that reveal to us what we ought to actually do with our feelings and the way we respond to the things he's allowed. So this reality of God being sovereign, for one, it's a reality, but also think rightly understood it should bring comfort to us. It should bring comfort to you to know that God is sovereign, that nothing happens that goes outside of his will or that he can't accomplish his will through, that he doesn't have purposes for. Nothing happens to you that God is suddenly caught off guard by, like, whoa, I didn't realize that was going to happen. Or that he didn't already have purposes for. And he's not up there or around or whatever, you know. I'm not sure that up there is the right way to describe where he is, right? He's in all, all places he's omnipresent. But the thing is, like, he's not there having an emotional response like we are to our circumstances. He's not suddenly frustrated or distressed when something bad happens in our life. And that is a good thing. He knows at all times what he's doing. He knows at all times what he's allowing, why he's allowing it, and fully aware of the purposes for why he is orchestrating things in the way that he is. And for that reason, I think this truth of God's sovereignty should settle some of our emotions, should help us to have that sense of peace we can remind ourselves that God is not surprised that there's purpose to everything I'm dealing with. But there's a second thing for us to see, another deeper reality here, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Now, you may have a translation that says something a little bit different because the Hebrew wording is, is interesting. The NIV translates this same phrase, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. You could ask why the difference. I think the point of the verse itself <clears throat> is to say that, hey, these bad things have happened. Jeremiah is reflecting on these bad things happening. But he's saying that the Lord's steadfast covenantal love with his people has not come to an end. He's not going to bring an end to his people. This is not the end of the story. So what we're looking at here and what Jeremiah is dealing with, what people are dealing with, is not the end of the story. How many of you have been through difficult things? has some emotional responses to it, and then you get on the other side of it, and things change. Your emotions go back to normal. You can see with more clarity what happened before, or maybe why it happened. Maybe you don't know why it happened, but you're not in the same emotional state that you were when it happened. Because you can see things differently, that, that it, it wasn't the end of the story. Life went on. We've all been through that. And I think what's, that's what's kind of happening here. The picture is that his love has not ended. It continues. It goes beyond this. So no matter what's happening in our life, whether it be self-inflicted struggles or brought on because of general brokenness in the world or maybe even brought on because somebody else sinned against us, God's steadfast love is greater than that. It goes beyond that. It does not end in that situation. It never runs out and he doesn't change his mind. You can rely on his steadfast love in a way that you can't rely on anything else. If you are his, you are always tied to him. So it doesn't matter how difficult the situation in your life is, his steadfast love 
remains. It doesn't matter how off the rails your feelings get. His steadfast love remains. And when he unites himself with a people, he is never done with them. And those of us who have been united with Christ through the gospel, we will always be his. He is faithful and he can be depended on. It's kind of a sub-point of this is that he, he doesn't change. This, you know, you read on here, he says, you know, these mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That he does not change. He is faithful. He's the same all the time. That is why his mercy doesn't fail. That's why his mercy doesn't run out. It's because he is unchanging. He never loses anything. He never runs out of, of energy. He never runs out of love because he is a constant for us. Circumstances change. Feelings change with them. But God doesn't change. Every morning that you wake, his mercies are the same that they were the day before. And that's good news too. Because sometimes we do drop the ball. Sometimes we mess up and, and we're like, how could God possibly love me? But when you wake up that next day, his mercies have not changed. It's not dependent on us. It's dependent on who he is. And who he is is unchanging. And this truth, if you set this beside your feelings, will help you determine whether or not your feelings are legitimate and how you should respond to them. For one, despair. The idea of despair. If God's love never runs out, if it never changes, if he is faithful to be who he is always, then despair doesn't, make, doesn't even make sense for us. We might have feelings of despair after something really difficult happens, but it's never the end for us. Just one example of how to take our feelings and, and go, okay, against this truth, against this reality, this doesn't make sense. A third thing, he is enough. He is enough when everything else is pulled back. I love this. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Everything else stripped away. More than likely, in this literal situation that Jeremiah is facing, everything broken down, everything taken, all food gone, people gone that he loved, everything depleted. But in this, in this situation where everything else is gone, he says, the Lord is my portion. If you have nothing else except for the one who holds everything, then you have everything you need. And that's what's being, that's what's being communicated here, I feel like. Should I wallow in my sadness because the future that I thought I wanted has now been stripped away or doesn't seem likely? No. You're united with the one who gives and takes away. And if he's taken away already, then you can be sure that he's ready to give something. It may not be what you wanted. Let's not, let's not be confused here. I'm not saying, you know, health and wealth gospel here, that if God has taken away, he's going to give back tenfold like he did with Job. That's not what I'm saying. But if he's the one who gives and takes away, then you can be sure that he is giving you exactly what you need as he takes away what he takes away. And until you realize that he's enough, I'm afraid you're always going to feel like you're coming up short. Until you realize that God is enough for you, you're always going to feel like you're coming up short. If he is truly the portion that satisfies, then anything less than him is going to leave me unsatisfied. And anything else added to him in my life won't really add anything to me. I know that may have sounded confusing. But if he's truly the portion that's satisfied, if I was anything else, anything less than him is going to leave me unsatisfied. But anything else added to him in my life won't really add anything to me because I already have everything I need in him. So much so that I can enjoy good gifts from him while I have them and then freely let them go when he chooses to take them away. 
because they didn't add anything to me anyways because I had everything I need in him. And this is not to say that we can't mourn and grieve loss or be sad when a season comes to end. Because we can. Those are legitimate things. These are legitimate feelings you can read in Scripture that there are times to mourn. We weep with those who weep. We struggle with things, right? And we have sadness that comes. But I'm just saying at the end of the day, we can take those feelings and we can set them up against the truth that the Lord is enough. And that's not to say that the feelings are going to go away automatically or even that they should because it's okay to lament. It's, okay. it's in the Bible. This whole book is here lamenting in the Bible. But we need to cling to the deeper reality that the Lord is my portion. Or to throw it back to last semester, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. A fourth thing, he does not afflict or grieve from his heart. So last semester, our D groups were reading a book called Gentle and Lowly. Some of you have read that. Some of you have not read that. Some of you haven't even heard of it. It's this book right here, Gentle and Lowly. <clears throat> In the book, Dane Ortland has a whole chapter devoted to Lamentations 3.33. And uh, I just want to read a paragraph, actually, from that chapter that I think will make sense of this. It'll be story time, story time with Sean. Um, so just hang on. It's not on the screen, so you just have to be good listeners. I don't know. Um, here's what it says. Here in Lamentations, the Bible is taking us deep into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He's not reluctant about the ultimate good that he's going to be brought, out, brought about through the pain. That indeed is why he's doing it. But something recoils within him, sending uh, that affliction. The pain itself does not reflect his heart. He is not a platonic force pulling heaven's levers and pulleys in a way that is detached from real pain and anguish we feel at his hand. He is, if I could put it this way, without questioning his divine perfections, conflicted within himself when he sends affliction into our lives. God is indeed punishing Israel for their waywardness as the Babylonians sweep through the city. He's sending that what they deserve, but his deepest heart is their merciful restoration. I don't know if you guys tracked with that at all. But the point is to say that verse 33 is significant. And the point he makes in the book is that verse 33 actually falls right dead center in the middle of the book. And it's literally, literary, like a literary device to show what the, the point of the book is. It's to say that God does not afflict from his heart or grieve the hearts of men. And so when you read here that, that in some way there's a reluctance in God to, to afflict, that he desires more so to give mercy. We need to be careful because, you know, we need to be careful about saying that God is conflicted in his heart about anything. But the point is to say that bringing affliction is not what he is most ready to do. It's not his ultimate desire for us. He's not out there just waiting. How, how can I afflict them? How can I make their life harder? That's not what he's doing. So if he brings affliction or difficulty into your life, you, you got to know he has purpose for it. He wouldn't just do it because he wants to. Because he doesn't. And we see this, that the suffering itself and all the emotions that you feel that are connected to it are not, are not the end goal for him. He's not doing it because that's what he wants to do. He's doing it for some other purpose. He's accomplishing some other purpose by afflicting or whatever it is that he is doing in the story here or in the story of your life, he is doing with purpose. See verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. This is not the end of the story. It's what we mentioned already before that his heart for us is the same as his heart for the nation of Israel at this time that Jeremiah is writing. He wants to show mercy, to restore. He feels compassion toward his people. Though he caused grief, verse 32, he will have compassion. 
according to the abundance of his steadfast love. His steadfast love is what's in abundance, but he doesn't afflict from the heart. And that is, that is a huge thing because sometimes we just get these hard feelings toward God because we feel like he's punishing us. We feel like he's doing all these things to us. And here's the thing. I don't think he's scared of our hard feelings toward him. Jeremiah, telling him all the ways that he feels. And yet he comes around to the truth in the end. We need to bring our laments to him. Bring our emotions to him, our feelings to him. And then do what Jeremiah has done. Line him up against the truth and say, like he says in verse 21, I have said all these things, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope all this truth that we've been laying out. Because I believe God would say to us that he's not out to get us, he's out to save us. That he's not out to turn our life into chaos, but to help us find stability where it can only be found in him. I don't, I don't think he's out there trying to see us hurt, but rather he's working a greater restoration through his sovereign plan that will mean our healing and his glory forever. That's what he's doing. And believing that, I can say, you know what, no matter what happens to me, no matter what I feel, justified or not, it's too much or too little feeling, if it's crossing a line into sin or, or if it's totally appropriate for my situation, no matter what it is that I feel, I can trust the Lord because he knows what he's doing and he loves me and that will never change. And here's how I know this is true. Because Jesus has borne our griefs. We talk a lot about grieving in this passage. He has borne our griefs. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That's how I know this stuff is true. I'm not just banking on words on a page. The incarnation showed me that this is what God is really like. That he really does care. This was Isaiah 53, that's prophecy. Hundreds of years before Jesus came. But then Jesus came as one of us. Felt the same kind of things that we have felt except without sin. And then he went to a cross, taking our sin upon himself. And then rising on a third day from death to defeat death on our behalf. And then ascended to be with the Father, to be a perfect mediator between God and men. He knows what it's like to feel what we feel. He's borne our griefs and he bore them all the way to the cross. For us. Because all this is true, he can sympathize with us even now in our weaknesses, in our pain, in our feelings, our temptations. Whatever it is that we're going through, he can sympathize because he has been one of us. And he still has his humanity in heaven. And that's a huge piece. He didn't just go, go back and say, I'm going to shed off this humanity now. I don't want anything to do with it. I dealt with it. It's done. I'm going to go be God now. No, he is still the God man. Fully God and fully man. So that he can continue to sympathize with us. That he can grieve with us when we grieve, feel our sadness, hurt with us when we hurt. And to know that he's not, he's not afflicting me without also feeling what it is for me to be afflicted. And that is a great comfort to me. You know, I was leading a small group this past Sunday of our young professionals here at the church last Sunday morning. And, and we were talking about Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So it's Ecclesiastes chapter 3 talks about a time for everything. A season to this, a season to that, a season to this, a season to that. And then as he gets to the end of all this talk about it, there's a season for all these things, he makes this comment in verse 11. 
that he makes all things beautiful in its time. That God makes all things beautiful in its time. And, and that, is, that is what we need to hear. Because as we face things, and as we feel things, and it's difficult for us, we need to know that God has a plan for this, that he's making all things beautiful in its time. It may not be the time that we wanted. It may not happen as quickly as we want it to. It may not even happen until we're with him forever. But he will restore, he will establish, he will comfort us, and he will heal us from all of our hurts. And so what is there left for us to do? What Jeremiah says to do. He says what he's doing. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So what we've got to do is wait, seek, and trust. You may not like hearing wait because you'd like for God to fix your issues now, to help bring back happiness now. But trust, trust me that no matter how long you have to wait, you are entrusting yourself to one who will make all things beautiful in his time. You can trust his character, his mercy, his compassion. It's not just words on a page. He took on flesh and bore our griefs for us. He became one of us to give us a hope and a future. And we could trust him. So it's the whole idea of like waiting but also seeking. Because I think sometimes we're like, okay, I'm going to sit back. God, you're doing something, obviously. You do whatever you're going to do, and I'm just going to sit here. That's not what he says to do. He says two things together. Wait for the Lord and seek him. So as you're feeling things, as you're dealing with things, we wait on him to do whatever he's going to do with it. But we also seek him. Because he says if you seek him, you'll always find him as long as you search for him with all of your heart. And that maybe just mean that you need to fully surrender your emotions if they don't line up with the truth. To seek him with all of, it, all of your heart. Because I really believe it's worth it to live this way. I believe that he's worthy of all of our praise. I believe he is worthy of our deferring to him in all things, trusting him, seeking him, waiting on him. I believe these things. And if we will, I know that we're going to see him make everything beautiful in his time. I know that we're going to find out from experience that he doesn't afflict from his heart and that this won't be our experience forever. And I know that we'll find out that we can be renewed every single morning knowing that his love has not run out and it never will.